Okie doke. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Architecture, family planning, technology. These can all be means of social control. Social control that is seen as, is believed to be apolitical, as being objective, and an obvious step toward progress. Or they could be understood as discriminatory classist in a process of depoliticizing the citizenry in an attempt at decollectivization and the implementation of neoliberalism. Back in the 60s and 70s, it was believed that you could solve all of the problems humanity was facing through technological fixes like modern housing and birth control and addressing the population explosion, which was seen as a ticking time bomb, not only for society, but our planet and its very finite resources. In developing economies, the perception was that if they wanted to join the modern world of progress, the key was getting the number of people within the nation, getting that number under control. By doing so, disease, crime, and pollution could all be a thing of the colonial past. Instead, the program turned into a nightmare that included forced sterilization and resulted in crowding the poorest of the poor together. We'll learn what can go wrong when housing is seen as the end-all and be-all of progress when we speak to architect Shivani Shedda, who wrote the E-Flux article, Housing the Poor for a Healthy Planet and a Healthy Nation, about the 1960s and 70s housing policy within India. Shivani is an architect and doctoral student in the History and Theory of Architecture at Princeton University. Shivani's work addresses patterns of architectural production that induce both environmental and social change, primarily in South Asia. Her research interests include the spatial imperatives of colonial mapping, visualization, and governance techniques, the politics of extraction, and its relationship with architectural materials, as well as the effects of mass decolonization in the 1960s, in particular, the various South-to-South solidarity movements that helped shape new discourses surrounding architecture and the environment. We'll also give you this week's Hangover Cure, tell you what happened this week in Rotten History, and we are announcing another title on our annual list of favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell. We are sharing with you one book to make this year's list during each and every one of our final 12 episodes of This Is Hell in 2020. What better way to celebrate the holidays than with 12 books of hell? I'm your Bitter, Blind, Broke, Gaptooth Radio Show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, well, if it's Monday, it must be Daphne Augustin. And Daphne, you look horrible. Hey. What the <laughs> hell happened to you over the weekend? Really? You think I look that much worse than Daphne? <laughs> I, kinda, I didn't expect that to hurt as much as it did, Chuck. So, uh, how are you, Alex? I'm good. Uh, Daphne has COVID symptoms, but uh, everyone has COVID symptoms <laughs> because it's December. So, uh, I think Daphne's okay. But uh, we're just being safe right now. And so if anybody got the sniffles, uh, stay away. Uh, Daphne, uh, get well soon. What were her symptoms anyway? I didn't even notice what their symptoms were. I just forgot them in the haze of the weekend. I just heard two of them, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, you're probably best to stay away. Uh, feel better, Daphne. But then she wrote back later to say she's pretty sure she's going to be okay. Uh, we're just playing it uh, very safe over here. But she got tested, right? Oh, I don't know. I think she said she got tested and she was going to wait on it. So we'll see. Anyway, more importantly, Alex... What's this week's question from hell for our listeners? Uh, this week's question from hell. We're keeping it light. Is uh, <laughs> what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Be honest. What was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? 
All replies get right on the show. Chuck's favorite worst thing wins uh, This Is Hell merch that you can select. And uh, next week it's going to be What's the Best Thing That Happened to You. So uh, save the best one for uh, next week. No, there you go. So don't try to employ your best answer with your worst There are some already answer. some really terrible responses. I'm pretty looking forward to this. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins. As Alex was saying, your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, Alex Jerry. Today's producer will be sharing your answers to this week's question from Hell. Following our guest again, the question from hell is, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Thanks to everybody who went to thisishell.com. Thanks to you for going to thisishell.com and clicking on support over the weekend. If you do go to thisishell.com and click on support, you can see all the ways you can help out your friends here at thisishell.com. Thanks for this. their support this weekend goes out to Brian, Day, Eric, Zach, Laura K. and John R. John, thanks so much for your very, very kind donation. And thanks again to Brian Day, Eric, Zach, and Laura. Thanks to all of you for your incredible support. Again, if you want to support thisishell.com and be thanked on the show, go to thisishell.com and click on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell and Alex Jerry. Today's producer has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is moderation and antioxidants. In the Vogue India article, How to Beat a Hangover According to Science, Dr. Anita Stanholm, a general practitioner specialized in dermatology and founder of a skincare company, is cited advising moderation. Limit the amount of alcohol you drink. The higher the blood percentage of alcohol, the worse the hangover. Duh! Dr. Sternum also suggests up your antioxidants. Try liposomal glutathione, an antioxidant supplement that helps eliminate the toxic byproducts of alcohol metabolism from the body. Take some before bed and as soon as you wake. So that makes this week's hangover cure, moderation, and antioxidants, especially liposomal glutathione. Wow, very Actually, well, no, the key is you just have to say things confidently, but if you actually go back and notice, I said that thing twice in different, different ways because yeah. I don't actually know how to pronounce Except that. I thing. think it's gluto, not gluto, but pretty good job. Pretty good job. You there. just need to sound uh, confident. Right, and never go back and try to fix it. Or tell people that you said it twice <laughs> in the wrong way. <laughs> exactly. And the only reason I uh, chose that hangover cure is because I wanted to see if Alex could get through liposomal Gluteathone. Oh, I thought it was. Uh, I thought you were trying to sort of like do a tax write-off on your Vogue India art- uh, subscription. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to do. Uh, and the other reason I just want to point out one other thing about that hangover cure. We know moderation will make it so you will prevent yourself from getting a hangover cure or getting a hangover. So I know moderation. Okay, please, any doctor out there, especially a skincare company owner. Don't tell me freaking moderation. I know it's moderation. Putting profits before people since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com 
And, you know, you can click on support, of course, and see all the stuff that we have in the store, the face mask, the winter cap, the T-shirt, the trucker's cap, tote bag, the enamel steel camping mug, whatever. This is how a guide to the 21st century flash drive containing dozens of interviews from the past 20 years. Or you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. All you have to do is subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can now find over 150 Patreon podcasts right now. It's like an additional year of This Is Hell with monologues by me and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else. But on Patreon, on this past Friday's Patreon podcast, after the uh, one week earlier, declaring war on Patreon. Sorry, on this past Friday's Patreon podcast, after declaring war on Christmas and the rest of its holiday accomplices on Patreon two weeks ago, it appears there has been some success in peace talks with the holidays, and an armistice finally seems possible, even likely. And you may remember how we received completely unsolicited CBD medicinals this summer from Wild Folks Farm in Maine, which not only deals in CBD stuff, but also grows wild rice. On Patreon, I gave an update on how those CBD tinctures and that CBD balm have been working for me. We also continue our series of interviews from right around 12 years ago, shortly after Barack Obama was elected president, to remind us all of what people were thinking and saying the last time a member of the Democratic Party became president to save us from what we were told were the horrors of the Republican Party and conservatism. So we shared our interview from less than two weeks after President Obama was inaugurated back in January of 2009 when we spoke with University of Chicago law scholar Aziz Hook, who posted an article at the Brennan Center for Justice's website titled Obama's Minimalist Approach to Guantanamo. At the time, Aziz wrote that Obama's executive order, which was signed in a very public way and shown live on TV everywhere, Obama's executive order on closing Guantanamo still doesn't go far enough toward addressing the worst of the Bush administration's moral and legal quagmires. No, it didn't. Guantanamo stayed open, still is, and instead of the Bush administration being held accountable for their crimes, President George W. Bush now has a favorability rating among Democrats, Democrats, of near 60%. So if you're still wondering, and I don't know why you should be, but if you're still wondering how Joe Biden became president, it's because the majority of the party that supported Biden views George W. Bush favorably despite Bush lying us into war and instituting a torture program. So to hear how negotiations are going in the war on Christmas, to find out what effect CBDs are having on me, and thanks again to the good people at wildfolkfarm.com for sending us stuff completely unsolicited, and to be reminded of what we thought an Obama administration promised, all you have to do to hear that is subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And you are going to want to do that because this Friday on Patreon, we are continuing our series of interviews from shortly after President Obama became president. And this Friday, we'll be featuring another interview from the late, great, gruff, kind of mean critic of U.S. foreign policy and author William Bloom, when he was on to tell us how concerned he was over Obama's campaign promises to threaten nations with military force. If you are a Patreon subscriber, you may remember we recently shared our interview with William when he was highly critical of the Obama and Hillary Clinton policy toward Libya, and he seemed very angry with me, just like he did in the, this interview that we'll be sharing on Friday. And I think at the end of this interview, I say, let's not have William Bloom back on because he's so mean. <laughs> 
but we did anyway. But you can only hear that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, including Andrew G., Forget Me Not, like an astronaut, which is awesome. And Roland, thanks for joining us on Patreon. We truly appreciate it. Andrew, Forget Me Not, and Roland. Finally, we got an email from Dan at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com yesterday. Dan, who informs us that he is an MD, a doctor, sends a guest suggestion writing, Please consider Tim Snyder of Yale University to talk about healthcare failures and the need to hold Trump administration accountable for the excessive deaths due to COVID. Also, Jimmy Dore has really done a great job of addressing governmental failure for most Americans during COVID. He has spent many shows pointing out how most every other first world country has helped out all of its citizens and we have failed ours. He is reactionary and blunt, that is uh, Jimmy Dore, but people need to hear this stuff. One more is Peter Carter, a physician in Canada who is on the forefront of the fight against climate change. And since it, since it is much worse than mainstream news, tells us we need more of a groundswell of alerting. Signed, Dan, MD. So that's the Tim Snyder from Yale that we interviewed back in 2017 when he was on to talk about his book that had just been published, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, an interview you can hear right now when searching on Snyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R, at thisishell.com. And Dr. Dan, here on This Is Hell, we've been addressing governmental failure for most Americans during COVID, spending many more shows pointing out how most every other first world country has helped out all of its citizens and we have failed ours. So there's no real need for any of you to waste your time listening to Jimmy Dore as we've done far better coverage of COVID, far more coverage of COVID, and way earlier than any Jimmy Dore or any other media outlet did. So... Eh, just go to thisishell.com and look up coronavirus or COVID, and you'll find plenty of stuff there. Capitalism is the Virus, and This Is Hell, the fifth book to make the list of our 12 favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2020, is The Hologram, Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future, by Cassie Thornton. In one of the most intriguing books we featured on the show this year, Cassie completely reconsiders our relationship with healthcare. The book embodies the kind of political imagination we all desperately need today. Cassie asks, what if we could reimagine healthcare into something that was more democratic and less, well, authoritarian? How would healthcare change if we approached it with the creativity of an art? What would happen if we had an open communication between medical experts and those they serve so we all better understand public health? And what if all of our doctors got together, and instead of seeing our health as some two-dimensional commodity to be profited from, we were seen in our entirety, in three dimensions, and understood at every level, both emotional, physical, as well as a thorough understanding of our family history, and not only our medical history. Cassie completely rethinks what health healthcare can be in one of the most fascinating reads of 2020, again, our fifth book to make our 12th 12 favorite books to be featured in an interview with their authors here on This Is Hell in 2020 is The Hologram Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future by Cassie Thornton. You can hear our August interview with Cassie right now at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on her last name, Thornton. This is hell, the last place where you thought you would get a good gift suggestion. Coming up, how housing policy can change Everything. We'll also have Rotten History and tell you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell. 
the planet's on fire. So yes, this is hell we all want. We all desire a planet that is not ravaged by environmental disasters. We also want a planet free of pollution and climate change. We also want to live in modern nations that address the worst society faces when it comes to issues like poverty, crime, and disease. In the 1960s and 70s, India tried to do just that by focusing on housing. Here to help us understand why housing is a, an interesting way to start your consideration of how to fix your nation and make it uh, better when it comes to environmentally and economically, and also what went wrong so similar assumptions are not made again in the future, architect Shivani Shida wrote the Eflux article, Housing the Poor for a Healthy Planet and Healthy Nation. Welcome to This Is Hell, Shivani. Hi, Chuck. Hi, it's good to hear from you. Shivani is an architect and doctoral student in the History and Theory of Architecture at Princeton University. And this writing, I just want to make sure everybody knows, is part of Sick Architecture, a collaboration between renowned architectural historian and theorist Beatrice Colomina, Eflux Architecture, and the Princeton University PhD program in the History and Theory of Architecture with the support of the Rapid Response David A. Gardner 69 Magic Grant from the Humanities Council and the program in Media and Modernity at Princeton University. Shivani, you write that in 1975, tired of its reputation for being a soft state, blemished by charges of corruption, security threats, labor unrest, uncontrolled poverty within a rapidly growing population, the Indian government of Prime Minister Indira Gandhi declared a state of emergency with the suspension of citizens' democratic and institutional rights. Gandhi laid forth in a number of speeches a new paternalistic vision for the Indian nation, one that claimed to act in the people's best interest even if it acted alone. And I'm going to want to get to the, those uh, interests in just a moment. But why did Gandhi believe that it was necessary to suspend democracy and institutional rights in order to modernize India? Why did Indira Gandhi believe that was necessary? Well, I, I think this is a much more complicated issue, which has very many different strands. Um, I think one of the main strands that I try and tease out in my article is this sort of anxiety of the post-colonial nation and how people like Gandhi needed to see the nation as um, as being able to modernize. And I, I think that um, things like poverty and overpopulation were, see, were putting the nation at detriment they weren't allowing um, a modernization process to take place completely. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a little simplistic to say that Gandhi suspended institution, constitutional rights just for the sake of modernization. But I think there is a connection there um, that, again, as I said before, is, is much more complicated. But at the crux of the issue, um, I, I see that as... Um, as one of the main reasons. 
So uh, you also write that for Gandhi, independence from colonial rule meant an opportunity to do our duty. This duty mirrored the message of the 1970 film Housing for the People, which depicted the creation of a modern India complete with neat homes, neat citizens. Produced by the film's division of India, the media arm under the Ministry of Broadcasting and Information, the film was one of the many documentaries that carried a message of post-colonial nation building, the eradication of poverty, pollution, and overpopulation, and uplifting those who had remained, according to Gandhi, oppressed for centuries through modernization. Uh, Population and poverty were intertwined and broadcast through government media such as this, as was the Prime Minister's slogan of remove poverty that foregrounded population control as a prerequisite for social mobility and economic development. Poverty was caused by overpopulation and kept India from being modern. How much were all of India's problems the outcome of overpopulation? Is that an oversimplification and why would that kind of oversimplification maybe made well yes it's definitely an oversimplification i i mean i think if we if we look at the problems of the 1970s i in india i i don't think um it's fair if we take that episode of um, Gandhi's suspension of rights in isolation. I think it has a much longer history with that has to do with um, like famines in India, like a history of famines in India that, that were very much part of, um, um, of, of the idea of the nation state. And one of the main um, problems that beset India as a post-colonial nation was how to feed the people. And it is within this idea of scarcity, scarcity to feed the people, that um, ideas of overpopulation were always anxiety-producing. Um, so I see the idea of overpopulation as one where the nation could never provide and if it could never provide, then what was the reason for its existence? So it was always for for people like Nehru and Gandhi, Nehru was um, the first prime minister of India. It, it was always a, a question of a balancing act. How, how do you feed a growing citizenry? Um, the other issue, to go back to my former point about modernization, was who who are these people that we're feeding? And how do we make a citizenry that is capable of being self-sustaining in some way? So it, it was always about some kind of social mobility, trying to get people to always have access to food, always have access to the comforts that they that they acquired. We have uh, had as a guest on our show in the past the Nobel Peace Prize or Nobel Peace Prize, sorry, Nobel Prize winning economist Amartya Sen, and he his work that he won the Nobel Prize for it was a study into showing that most famines are not caused by scarcity but are caused by the markets are caused by capitalism. How much do you think this idea that the problems with India were caused by overpopulation, were caused by scarcity, how much do you think that is imposed upon India by the West? It's completely, well, 
maybe I shouldn't be that blatant about it, but of course it, it is very much a Western discourse. And I think that one of the things that I try and write about in my paper is how the intrusion of um, like organizations like the Ford Foundation craft analysis about um, scarcity. The interesting thing is that India Gandhi was very much opposed to ideas of um, of, of um, Western environmentalism in some way, and she saw um, she saw that there was definitely maneuvering by um, by the West and by by keeping markets in their control. Um, it, but unfortunately, she she wasn't able to um, really turn it around in any meaningful way. Um, but it was always since the 1950s um, where organizations like the Ford Foundation came in and tried to create this idea of um, of dependency, really. Now that we can look back 30, 40, 50 years at this program, what do you think motivated that focus and concerns about overpopulation? Is viewing fertility rates of the developing world as a threat to the planet, is that in any way a manifestation of racism or classism, or is it just a project to divert attention from the shortcomings of capitalism? I think it would be all three. I don't think those three things are inseparable, really. Um, I think there is a long history going back to um, the 19th century where there isn't, there is, there has always been a racial component towards um, seeing some areas as overpopulated. There's definitely a class component. There's even a caste component in in the case of India, um, where um, elites bureaucrats see an overpopulating lower caste, lower class um, citizenry. Um, but I think these are very intertwined with how capital operates, and I I don't think that they can be isolated or seen seen by themselves. You write how family planning was originally marketed and rolled out as a voluntary system with mobile health and education services that traveled from village to village to preach an optimum family size and extensive mass media campaigns that flashed positive, easily understandable messages on contraception through press, radio, television, films, folk songs, drama parties, puppets, exhibitions, and overabundance of birth control propaganda took hold of the built environment in the 1970s, marked by an inverted vermilion equilateral triangle with the slogan two or three two or three children stop influenced by the aims of a growing environmental mm-hmm. movement that saw resource security as essential to be gro- to the growth of the nation family planning in india soon became linked to a question of who was allowed to reproduce with an eventual escalation of coercive tactics how did family planning change from being a completely voluntary system to being one that threatened the poor to not reproduce. How did that change happen? Because I thought the whole idea was to 
not have as much direct government intervention. So, so how did it change from being a voluntary system to one of coercion? Well, without getting into too many statistics or exact numbers, um, I guess in the 50s, what is the voluntary system? That's when the voluntary system really took hold. Um, through the 70s, we see a change in how bureaucrats understand the need for family planning. And I, I really see family planning as a method of population control over here. I, I see this change happening because there are people who are now, um, sorry, I, I mean like state officials who um, are trying to form incentive programs there. And this is also, the, the mid 60s was also a time that a lot of uh, states in India were going through a pretty bad agricultural um, season. There were a lot of droughts, there were a lot of famines. And poor peasants, poor farmers were sort of incentivized to sterilize themselves. I mean, not sterilize themselves, but go for sterilization, um, go to sterilization camps and get money in Jitan. Um And a lot of people were sort of coerced into um, into these programs. There were some states that um, that proposed that sterilization be compulsory for people who had two or three children. And they said that this should be capped at three children, nobody should have more. Um, so there is really a change in how the government conceives of family planning policy and the winds of change really in 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 the sense seen because of frequent droughts and frequent famines, um, frequent withhold of aid from countries like the States. Um, yeah. And you also write that from April to December of 1976, over 7 million sterilization surgeries were involuntarily performed on both poor men and women. Were these sterilizations mm-hmm. of millions of poor men and women, uh, were, these con- were these conducted by force? How, how was this program implemented? Um, so this is where the housing component really comes to the fore. Um, in places like Delhi, if you lived in slums, you were forcibly taken to sterilization camps, um, and your your slum your slum house would be demolished, and you would be sort of relocated into a house that the government provides you. Um, I'm not completely sure of who exactly was undertaking the sterilization. Of course, it was a team of medical experts, but I'm, I'm, what I mean to say is I'm not sure if this is a program solely funded by the Indian government or whether it had um, foreign aid as well. It's really just... Uh... Just a very sad 
part of our history. You write, uh, and I want to bring this up because it's the kind of uh, philosophizing and theorizing that was driving a lot of these ideas. You write Buckminster Fuller had a differing, if more nuanced, opinion on the ticking population bomb that had a significant impact on Indian housing policies. In a speech delivered at the World Resources Institute, In Carbondale, Illinois, Fuller disputed the need for any form of population control in the industrialized world, attributing higher population figures to a lowered mortality rate. Then you quote Fuller saying, I see then that one country after another industrializes, and as they do, down go the babies and up comes life expectancy. I found that industrialization is the key factor to cutting down on the birth rate and much more than any other thing. And then you add articulating this belief in the reconfiguration of social practices through science over population for Fuller was a problem of non-industrial countries that could be solved through technological interventionism and the making of a world knowledge system as well as a total environment, a very complex affair. And you add that, however, Fuller's vision for preventing resource scarcity was self-avowedly apolitical, which I don't really understand. Was was Fuller's solution to the problem, uh, the problems that were associated with overpopulation, what he saw as a uh, an apolitical solution? Was it really apolitical? Because I just don't believe anything is apolitical. Did this end up being an apolitical solution, or is this in fact a political solution? Well, I, of course, don't believe that everything is apolitical, but Fuller famously was self-avowedly apolitical. Like, he always said that he believes in um, the purity of design, in in the way that design doesn't need to be guided by politics or militarism, which doesn't really make sense given the legacy and given the kind of... Um, projects that he was involved in, given his closeness to the U.S. government and um, being sort of very friendly and pally with a whole bunch of leaders of the world at the time. Um, But of course, I, I don't think that Fuller's ideas can be seen as apolitical. Um, He 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 was of the belief that um, industrialization and industrialization through technologization through science could be, and and here I, I think it's important to me to say that Fuller thought that science was apolitical. Fuller thought that technology could be apolitical, and I think that's something that a lot of people still believe. I I don't think that that's um, possible. And he believes that industrialization and modernization could be a way to solve the world's problems, could be a way to sort of solve the planet's problems. Um, And he was always trying to see the planet or see the Earth, see ecology as a way where science, technology and the natural environment could sort of co-mingle. I don't know. It's a it's a it's a strange it's a strange idea that that you have it. Yeah, and you know, it made me think when I was reading your work uh, about the way that overpopulation. If we think that overpopulation is a problem, how that might affect the rest of our thinking? Does seeing overpopulation as the problem lend to the idea? That technology, not humanity, not politics, is the only thing that will save us. Does believing all the world's problems are driven by overpopulation 
lead to a belief, if not a faith in technology to save the day, that whatever our challenge or crisis is that we face, technology will be our savior? Do I believe that? Or no, do you believe that? Do you? Be- um, I mean, because I, I'm just wondering if this, how a focus on overpopulation may affect the way that we view the rest of the world. Because here in the United States, we have such a faith in technology that technology was going to save us from the pandemic. Technology is going to save us from climate change, and we don't really have to do anything about it. So, does seeing overpopulation lead to believing that technology is the end all and be all? I, I mean, of course, that's a fallacy. I I think that ideas of overpopulation puts the burden on on people, and it doesn't really provide structural solutions. I I I don't think technologization in any in any form can can be an effective solution if you if if you're not addressing why or how on. If you, if you don't address um, the main reasons for um, racial and class-based inequalities, that it just doesn't work. You also point out that uh, Indira Gandhi wrote it in her speech, the program uh, Design for Living, a joint proposal between India, Mexico, Finland, Czechoslovakia, Japan, Poland, and Yugoslavia, pre- presented in 1966 at the 14th General Conference of UNESCO. Its newly conceived design rationale brought to the fore the importance of man's natural habitat and saw a need not only for inculcating new principles of fi- civilized living, but also the engineering of basic materials to promote a design for survival. Did Gandhi believe we were facing a potentially catastrophic environmental crisis? Did her concerns presage today's discussed responses to climate change? So, again, I think this is a much more complicated issue because I think today's concerns with climate change while slightly different have its origins in the 60s and 70s when there was really this sort of reckoning with what do we do with our planet and there's going there's so much overpopulation we are running at a scarcity of natural resources and there's so much pollution and we're basically destroying the environment and I think Gandhi was a figure who sort of um, modeled herself on being a protector of the environment. She was one of the people who started um, um, sort of advocating for the conservation of tigers, for example, in India. And, um, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. Um, and, um, I think for her, design for living was a way to sort of change this environmental narrative a little bit to talk about people's place in the environment. Um, and um, she she said a, she she said multiple times that the the environment can never really be considered unless you consider raising um, people's standards of living. So which is why I, I find Gandhi a sort of difficult person to write about because she has multiple sort of changing 
opinions and 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 changing ideas about what what um, man's relationship to the environment. Yeah, it's really interesting that it seems to contradict itself at certain points. You write that housing figured on Gandhi's agenda to complete the unfinished revolution, and then you quote the first Prime Minister of India, Nehru, noting that the house is not merely a place to take shelter from the rain or the cold or the sun. It should be an enlargement of one's personality, and if human welfare is our objective, this is bound up with the house. Now, this is in 1953, Nehru says this. Why the house? Why not the city center or the infrastructure that supports the entire community? Why only the individual house? Um, so I think this goes back to one of the first questions that you asked me about modernization. I think for the Indian state, modernization was sort of combined with an idea of who the citizen was. And um, in a lot of ways, modernizing imperatives also meant that you made dignified citizens. You could make dignified citizens by um, giving them access to things that supposedly everybody should have, which is the house. Um, And I think the house as a figure of modernity is a very, um, it's all over the place um, in the 50s. It it, it really starts to pervade architectural discourse at the time, Um, not just with figures like Nehru and Indira Gandhi, but um, the architectural community at large. Was this was the idea, we will provide you with new modern homes, but they're going to be small homes, so you will not have, when it comes to the poor, uh, they'll be small homes, so you won't have the space for a large family. Because I can see how that can lead to overcrowding and possibly the same population problems you're trying to avoid in the first place. Because you point out how when it comes to low income, they would have a certain square footage of of, uh, space. When it comes to uh, lower income, it would be a little bit larger. When it comes to middle income, it would be a little bit larger. As if to say, if you're poor, you don't have room for kids, but if you become more rich, you'll have more room for kids. So was the idea, we'll provide small homes so you will not have the space for a large family? And is that... Did that lead to the same kind of overcrowding problems that they were trying to avoid in the first place? Um, Yes and yes. So very simplistically, I think that can be seen as the base idea for um, low-income housing at the time. If you had a smaller house, you would provide that to slum dwellers. If you had a slightly bigger house, maybe... Um, to um, low-income workers that were working in industries or something like that, Um, and so on and so forth. The idea was one of self-regulation. The idea that Gandhi also talks about um, in her design for living that we spoke about a little earlier is that people should be taught and educated how to sort of be... Um, accepting of this new modernity and be um, willing to partic- participate in better alternatives. They, she, she often said that 
people don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm saying this very simplistically, but people don't know what, what is good for them. And we need to, to sort of educate them um, and, and tell them that there are better alternatives. Um, and the second idea is that it, you will, you, if, if you do limit your family, the possibility of you climbing up a social ladder is higher. Um, so if you limit your family now, you're going to have more resources, like domestic resources, to provide to your sons and daughters. And that means that there's going to be more money within the domestic unit and you will be able to eventually climb that ladder and have a much larger house. I think very simplistically that that, that was the idea behind housing schemes. You write that throughout the 1970s, government reports continued to justify smaller housing for lower income groups, claiming that standards such as those determined by the American Public Health Association for healthy housing was far-fetched for a growing population. What was it about American housing that they saw, that the Indian government saw as far-fetched? Um, I mean, they, they just thought that the standards that were set by um, by these architects in, in the so-called developed world were just not achievable for um, a place like India. So, And this is the other problem of the Indian nation state because it always aspired to some kind of modernizing standard. And at the same time, um, when these schemes would do be implemented, they realize or or they said that, um, well, well, no, we can't actually do that because our population is too big. Where are we, we going to get all the materials from to house such a large um, to, to sort of build these houses and house these people. So we're going to build smaller houses, even though, um, you know, Ecosix magazine says that we need to provide a minimum amount of square footage for a family of four. Let's let's do maybe two thirds of that. Um, so this is this is a strange sort of difference between theory and practice that happens at um, the state level. This was a post-colonial attempt by Gandhi to modernize society, even though it was a post-colonial attempt. Attempt. How much do you see the legacy of colonialism in that implementation? Because the way that you describe it, and Indira Gandhi talking, telling the people that, you know, she knows better. That sounds like the paternalism of colonialism. So to what extent did Gandhi actually mimic colonialism in this housing policy process? Um, I, I mean, is that a question that is ever settled? I think that's that's a question that has sort of um, sort of terrorized post-colonial historians for a long time. Um, I, it's it's a difficult question to answer because on the one hand, like I said before, she she does seem to have um, a, a genuine um, concern for the people. She she she, she does see um, like this global north south disparity as something that needs to be overcome. She does see 
um, promise in, in there being a self-sustaining nation state that is free from the colonial oppressor. She does see forms of neocolonialism all around her. But at the same time, um, her government enacts um, crazy policies. So I don't, I, I don't think that this is a question that is ever going to be completely resolved. Through this modernization in housing, through the destruction of the slums, through the provision of new housing, did the living conditions of the poorest of the poor improve with this modernization? Has has even family planning worked potentially in alleviating poverty and modernizing developing economies? Well, you know, before I started my doctoral program, I worked many years as an architect. And um, a lot of the projects that would come my way would be um, about housing and about slum rehabilitation programs. Um, a lot of the people that I would interview with would um, would be pretty adamant that they did not want to be rehoused into apartment buildings um, because there is this idea that these apartment buildings don't work um, and they're much happier with the neighborhood sort of setting of the slum. Um, I, so, no, it hasn't obviously improved the conditions of um Housing hasn't improved and housing, I don't think, is able to completely be um, accepted by the people because it has failed in the past. Shivani, I really appreciate you being on our show today. I still have one more question for you. One of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show, and it's something that comes up in your article over and over again, is it just seems that we we look to see how to address the many crises we have and we look to everything except to the market we accept to capitalism we seem to look at everything else other than considering how the market actually impacts our lives and you point that out very well in your article again we've been speaking with architect shivani shedda who wrote the eflux article housing the poor for a healthy planet and healthy nation shivani is a an architect and doctoral student in the history and theory of architecture at princeton university one last question for you shivani and i promise we do this with all of our guests our final question is what we call the question from hell it's either the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer or our audience is just going to hate your response you write that as demographers political scientists economists environmental activists and architects theorize the relationship between fertility management and the health of the earth in the 1960s population control unfolded across the decolonizing nations more specifically in its low-income regions. To what extent was the low-income population, to what extent did they suffer from that overpopulation theorizing in the West? Did the limits to growth lead to suffering among the world's poor? Um, yes. Um, I'm... I'm, I'm not sure if there needs to be a bigger answer to this, but um, yes, of course, I, I, I think that um, 
because I don't think people understand why that would why that would lead to uh, why that would lead to that kind of discrimination. I mean, it's a simple question of having your rights taken away. It's um, it's a question of not being of being patronized in a way that that you don't know what is good for you, but um, but the state does, and and this not but not in. I mean, Indira Gandhi always wanted to have a welfare state, but um, and in some ways she was successful, maybe. Um, but I think a lot of men and women, when you hear oral interviews with them, they they have a lot of regrets that um, that they didn't have control over their reproductive rights, and um, I think this is. This is not uh, unique to India. This is um, this has happened world over. Um, the poor are really the target of um, bureaucratic fantasies. And um, to answer your question, yes, they have suffered. Shivani, I really appreciate you being on our show today. This was a fantastic conversation. You were really, really great. I truly appreciate you being on our show this week. Again, you have to read Shivani's article. We have a link to it at our website, Housing the Poor for a Healthy Planet and Healthy Nation. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is a really, really fascinating article. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Alex, please remind us what's this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering the question so far. Uh, strap in for this one. Yeah. <laughs> this week's question from hell is, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? <laughs> oh, what was the yeah. worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Joe G says, I learned I was to be jobless when my old university eliminated my 2021 visiting professor position in a group email. Then they asked me to teach the class at an adjunct salary with no benefits. <laughs> Did he write that in any of the last 20 years, <laughs> 30 years. Uh, what is the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Kelly H. says, okay, well, I think we have a winner. Kelly H. wrote, my children's friends' suicides, plural. Mm. Steve C. says. Wow, Kelly. Yeah. Jesus. Don't know if we're coming back from that one. Oh, man. What was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Angela M. said, 2020. Steve C. says, I was exposed to it. Benjamin C. says, Joel McHale asked me, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> uh, Bongo, the Garrity or this one, Bongo C. says, my dog stroked out so hard that I thought I had to euthanize. I called my vet, dug a grave, only for her to get up after two days of not moving an inch, only to get out of bed to walk over to my vet and eat treats from his hand. He then looks at me curiously from his eyes just above his glasses and says in a northern Italian accent, and you want to euthanize her? Needless to say, she's the first dog in my half century of life that I had to dig a grave for twice. <laughs> what is the worst thing that happened in 2020? Kim G says, because of COVID-19, losing my whole dog walking business in March, then turning 50 in May, realizing I hadn't made a good five-year plan or 10-year plan at any point. Nico T says, returning to school, the last semester, mind you, after spending roughly a month and a half with my parent being in the hospital diagnosed with end-stage renal failure and having classes immediately go online due to COVID, then receiving grad school rejections that week and not being able to pay for anything or find a job. Good times. Good answer, but too many words. Uh, <laughs> what is, was the worst thing that happened in 2020? Jeffy D says, got dizzy, nauseated, had difficulty breathing, and almost passed out in the street during one of the August heat waves. Nick A says, I had to share an honest answer on the question from Hill. <laughs> 
what as the worst thing that happened in 2020 lisa b said I had to put down one of my cats oh, a week before thanksgiving Jack B says, lost my job and ended up doing pizza delivery, which is extremely low-paying, precarious work. But hey, at least there's more time to listen to this as hell. <laughs> Sorry, Jack. Uh, Chris L says, I died about six months ago. And get this, it wasn't even COVID-related. <laughs> Jeremy T says, a positively and absolutely psychotic aftermath of creating an OkCupid account, LOL. <laughs> what is the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Garrett says, not being able to go on my week-long summer vacation to someplace I'd never been before. This year would have been New York. And finally... Kevin W. says, a bit too early to be making commitments, isn't it? 2020 moves fast. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hal wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of the merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory rotten history. But before I read this week's rotten history... Alex, I actually knew somebody who buried their dog because they thought it was dead. And then the next morning, they heard a scratching at the door. And there was the dog, totally covered in dirt. He had dug himself out of the grave and was scratching at the door. Uh, what did they do with the other two monkey's claws <laughs> on that monkey paw? I don't know, but that, was, that story has always disturbed me. Maybe I should get verification. December 11th, 1964, 56 years ago this Friday, the pop, R&B, and gospel singer Sam Cooke was shot to death at the age of 33 under mysterious circumstances at the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles. Wait, isn't that Hacienda? Isn't that where Bobby Kennedy was assassinated? Okay, I've always been curious about Sam Cooke, but I, 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 how he died, but I, I'm never curious enough to look it up. So what the hell happened to Sam Cooke anyway? Earlier that December evening, Cooke had checked into the hotel with a sex worker named Alyssa Boyer, who later testified that Cooke had taken her there against her will and tried to rape her. Gross. Boyer said that when Cooke went to use the bathroom, she had grabbed her clothes and most of his and fled the motel before calling police from a phone booth. The motel manager later testified that Cook, wearing only a jacket and one shoe, had barged into the motel office yelling, Where's the girl? That's even more gross. She said that after a struggle and in fear for her life, she had shot Cook in self-defense. A jury later accepted her story and ruled Cook's death a justifiable homicide. Wait, Sam Cook was shot, a shooting from which he would die. But he had the strength to go to the motel manager's office and yell, where's the girl? Something ain't right here. However, both the manager's story and Boyer's were soon called into question due to various inconsistencies, especially by people who knew Cook well and found his actions in the account to be out of character for him. So taking a sex worker to a hotel room and then coming downstairs with one shoe on in your jacket and yelling, where's the girl? That sounds out of character for Sam Cooke. Okay. The motel manager began receiving death threats amid a profusion of lawsuits and conspiracy theories about mob setups motivated by racism and white supremacy. Meanwhile, Sam Cooke records be became big sellers and he received many posthumous honors. Fifteen years after his death, Alyssa Boyer the sex worker was convicted of second-degree murder in an unrelated case and was sentenced to 25 years in prison. No wonder I don't know what happened to Sam Cooke in Sam Cooke's death. Nobody knows what happened in the killing of Sam Cooke, and I still don't know. And just because Alyssa Boyer killed somebody later on doesn't mean that she killed Sam Cooke. In Rotten History, December 12, 1866, 150 years ago this Saturday, series of fires and explosions at the Oaks Calliery in Yorkshire, England, resulted in the deaths of 361 coal miners and rescuers. Criminy. Calliery's 
come up in rotten history a lot. It's almost like coal mines have a long and very rotten history from killing miners to killing the planet. And it's also made me learn that the word colliery means coal mine. The Oaks Colliery had long been considered one of the most dangerous in England. Not that that led to the mine being closed. Two years later, or two years earlier, its owners had broken a strike using scab labor and had thrown regular employees and their families out of their company-owned homes because not only are coal mines disgusting, so are the people who own them. Eight years before that, the miners had gone out on strike for two and a half months over concerns about bad management and inadequate safety measures, including poor ventilation. Oh, those greedy workers always wanting more money. But they had finally gone back to work without a settlement because they were starving and they figured they could starve to death with their families or risk working in the mine to feed their loved ones. That's a couple of great options there. The first underground explosion at the Oaks Mine could be felt three miles away, and dozens of bodies were pulled out of the mine shafts in the hours that followed. Four or more explosions occurred over the next several days, killing rescuers and more miners, including young boys, many of whose bodies were never recovered. An inquest failed to find a definitive cause for the explosions, but noted that government inspectors had not visited the mine for several years, so the British government didn't care if the mines were not safe. The Oaks Colliery explosion remains the deadliest mining disaster in England and the second deadliest in the UK. And it's a good reminder of how coal caused climate change, how coal mines were dangerous, how coal mine owners didn't care if their miners died, and how the British Empire enforced that upon the planet and humanity and destroyed us all. Yeah, yeah. That's rotten and... That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, please tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday show, beginning at 10 a.m. Central Time. Uh, we're going to be talking with Frank M. Snowden on his new book, Ec- Epidemics and Society from the Black Death to the Present. You know that's not the Snowden I wanted on the show. The other one. <laughs> this one might have been a little easier to get on the show. <laughs> Anybody else you got uh, scheduled uh, for this so week? So that's, uh, that's Tuesday on Wednesday. I got a bunch of requests out. I'm trying so hard to book someone uh, behind all the mass strikes that are happening in India. Uh, still working on that one. So Wednesday might have to make a call on that pretty soon. Uh, but then Thursday, we just booked um, uh, past guest Amanda Sperber to talk about her really great piece, which I did not expect to say was from NBC News called Uber Made Big Promises in Kenya. Drivers say it's ruined their lives. And it's all about sort of the economy of Uber uh, and ride sharing in Kenya and is nuts. It's really great. So she's going to be back on the show and we're going to have her on, on Thursday and Jeffy's still working on Wednesday. And we are still looking for people to talk to us about what is what took place this past weekend in Venezuela as well as what's happening within Peru. So if any listener, if any of you have a suggestion for a guest on Peru, India, or Venezuela, send it along to chuck at com, and I'll send it over to Alex. First, thanks to Alex Jerry for producing today's show. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for doing Rotten History. Thanks to Shivani Shetta for being today's guest. Daphne, please get well soon. We're all rooting for you. We know it's just a cold. I'm certain of it. I'm positive. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.